0: Okay, Uh, Psalm 78 would be described as a historical psalm. Uh, Psalm 105 and 106 fit this same category. Uh, Also, there are other reviews of Israel's history in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9 is a good example. Uh, There are three, really, in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 23 history telling is selective. You just can't record every single thing that happens. That's, that's just not even possible. All history is selective history. And I think these Psalms give us, in a sense, as one writer said, a philosophy of history. <clears throat> what is the Bible seeking to accomplish by history? I would say there are two main lessons in in most of those passages that I uh, mentioned at first. This Psalm, Psalm 105, 106, Nehemiah 9, etc. Those points are the goodness of God and the sinfulness of Israel. And those points, of course, are set in contrast to each other. God's goodness is all the more brighter against the background of Israel's sin, and Israel's sin is all the darker against the background of God's righteousness. Yeah, there's another chair here, in case. Okay, but. <clears throat> So, both of those points make the other shine, shine out in even greater contrast. Now, there's a statement that is often made those who do not learn the lessons of history, how do you finish that? are doomed to repeat them. them. Sometimes you've said, some some gave a King James translation of that, some gave uh, an English Standard Version (laughs) translation of that. But it's the same basic thing. Those who don't know the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And those of us who do know the lessons of history are doomed to watch as others repeat them. Oh, another great quote. Uh, But, um, so we're to learn from this history. We're to learn from this history those points. God's goodness to us and our failure to walk with Him and to follow Him. But let's look at the first eight verses where this kind of gives a purpose of relating this history. It says, Amaskel of Asaph, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and not to be like their fathers, a stubborn and and rebellious generation that did not prepare its heart, whose spirit was not faithful to the Lord. Now, we're going to look at verse 2 later. When we talk about, and Lord willing, what we're going to do is get through the first 39 verses tonight. Get through the first 39 verses, and then at that point, of course, restore uh, see... How is Jesus fulfilling the words of this? But verse 2 is quoted in the New Testament. It is quoted in Matthew 13 to speak of Jesus' teaching in parables. And we're going to make more of a point of that later. But the psalm opens by begging the people to listen. Listen to this instruction. And this is a parable and these are dark sayings. The word for dark sayings that's used in verse 2 is the word that Samson used when he was telling his riddle in judges 13 through 16. It doesn't mean that it's not historically true, but it means history history teaches lessons that we have to ponder to understand. I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings and he wants to relate these things, So that fathers may teach their children to praise God, to praise His strength, and that they may teach further generations. And there's so much emphasis in verses 3 through uh, 7 in particular of parents teaching their children. I want you to think how often in the Old Testament God did things explicitly for parents to teach their children about God. They observe the Passover and in Exodus 12, 26 and 27 when your children ask you what does this night mean? Then you tell them. It's a, it's a ready made opportunity. Every year they celebrate the Passover for children to ask their parents about why do we celebrate this Passover? To tell them what God did to deliver us. Same thing In Exodus 13, verses 8 and 9, for the giving of the firstborn. For those of you you who've been in our Joshua class, you remember that God divided the waters of the Jordan and Israel took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan and they set them up at Gilgal. And they set them up and it says, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, then you're going to tell them that the Lord cut off the waters of the Jordan and we crossed over on dry land. God wants us as parents to teach our children. I'll tell you, there is no place in the Bible for parental neutrality. I'm just going to let them make their own decision. No, that's the reason you got parents. Because you're going to guide them to make a decision for God, to teach them about Him more important thing could we communicate to them? And the purpose of all this history the text states in verse 7 it says that they might put their confidence in God. When we review biblical history in particular, this leads us to put our confidence in God to trust in God every time that we read biblical history, it should build up our trust. Build up our confidence in Him. That we would put our confidence in Him. This may be used in parallelism, but we will not forget Him. We will not forget Him. Now, in the midst of our world, a lot of things that go on in our world, and a lot of things that go on in news, in entertainment, Some of it, some of it is, but some of it's not. A lot of it's not explicitly anti-God in the sense that they are saying, you know, this is not God. This is mocking directly biblical values. Sometimes they just leave God out of the discussion altogether because they don't believe He's important enough to work into the story. We can't forget that history is His work and all the good things we experience are experienced because of Him. And so it leads us to put confidence in Him, not to forget Him, to keep His commandments. And keep His commandments, it's got to be a subcategory of one of these two. So I don't put it as a separate thing. But, but also, now this is interesting the purpose of history is not to be like their fathers. Not to be like their fathers. Now, I don't even know oh yes I do know Sister Brown was doing this she came in She was talking about history, and she said she has got excited about history because she got excited reading about her family. Now, I have not ever been one to study a great deal my family genealogy, but when people study their family genealogy, do the ones they tell you about, are they usually somebody that's accomplished something, or are they usually ones that were the town drunk? I mean, to ask the question is to answer it. I I know that. You know, my family boasted for years, um, my grandmother in particular, on my mother's side, about how she was supposed to get money from Quaker O's because we were, her maiden name was Penn, and her mother's maiden name was Penn, and we were descendants of William Penn. Um, there was even a story done in our local newspaper about all the great-grandchildren of William Penn who lived in our area, and my, my, my mom got included in that. I went in a meeting in Texas several years ago, and there was a family there named Penn. And uh, and I said, you know, we might be relating. He said, we probably are. I said, we're, uh, we're descendants of William Penn, and he says huh, he had studied the genealogy real closely, and he said that's impossible because William Penn didn't have any children. So, <laughs> so there goes our claim. To say. <laughs> right there. But but it's uh, <laughs> anyway. My point is that's the persons we like to be connected with. He uses this not to say, hey, look at these great people in Israel's past that we've been like. But he says, I want you to hear this history so that you're not like them. Stubborn and rebellious. Now both of these terms, stubborn and rebellious, are used I think around 40 to 50 times in the Old Testament. Stubborn and <laughs> Rebellious. But let me tell you a time that's really important. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 and verse 20, uses both of these terms together. If your son is stubborn and rebellious and will not listen to the voice of his father and listen to the voice of his mother, then you're to bring him to the elders of the city and ultimately he ends up being stoned. Because he's stubborn and rebellious. The same words that were used to refer to the disobedient son that was stoned in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 and verse 20 are used to describe Israel in this passage. In Psalm 78, verse 8. Now what does that tell you? That tells you if anything good happens in their history, It is due to God's grace. And it's due to His mercy. Because the people deserve death for their sins. If we're going to appreciate the mercy and grace of God, we first are going to have to recognize how profound our sins are and how desperately we needed to be cleansed. And if we don't realize that, we're never going to realize the importance of the mercy that we have been shown and the grace that we have been given. That word rebellious is going to reappear in verse 17. It's going to appear again in verse 40 uh, and it seems like there's one other verse uh, that it also appears, but we'll maybe see that uh, later. Any questions right there? I think sometimes we
1: uh, have uh, assumed that our children are going to be faithful because they see us and we don't rely on the word. We, we, we fail to
0: teach them
2: the word just assuming that they're going to pick that up. Yes. And that is a sad mistake.
0: How many things do we learn by osmosis. I mean, it's not, not too many and we have to make a concerted effort to tr- teach those things. Gary?
3: I was thinking along the same lines that some people fall into the trap of thinking if they just bring their kids to church and hand them over to the Bible class teachers that yeah. they're getting everything that they need and that's not always the case. It goes yeah. back to our, being our responsibility. It's
0: primarily our responsibility. I, I can remember a lady told me, and, and I was—we were first married, and I didn't have children. And um, but this statement was yeah. <clears throat> deeply troubling to me, and I don't remember how I responded to it at the time that she said it but she came to me and talked to me that her son, who was about 13 or 14, was thinking about being baptized. And she said, I asked his Bible class teacher his opinion, which, which I think is fine, but this was the sad part. Because she said he would know better than I would whether he's ready. hmm No. No. And over the years, I've realized that even more profoundly. If He knew better than you knew, there's already two strikes against Him in this world. We've got to teach our children as if everything Depended on it because it dies. It, it it dies. Let me use a secular illustration. When I was first able to to recognize anything about sports, the University of Mississippi was. On TV a couple of times and games, and they had a quarterback running around with a cast on his arm that nobody could seem to catch, and, and um, named Archie Manning, who would now be forgotten by everybody, <laughs> were except for people in the state of Mississippi, they, they they remember him very fondly, unless he communicated to his children his knowledge of the sport. And they knew everything about the game. They understood the game and had enough physical ability to pull it off and now they're teaching another generation as there's, a, there's another one on the horizon. But this is my point. We have something better to offer our children than he did his. Now, I recognize our children are not going to have fame that he has did or the money that he has did. But that's not what it's about anyway. It's about eternal life. And we've got a better treasure at our hands. And may God help us to be quick to share it. But in verses 9-11... The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of the Lord, but refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. This is a, a picture that starts to tell us of the unfaithfulness of the nation. The story is about God's wonders and God's power and God's strength contrasted with Israel's sin. The goodness of God versus the sin of the people constantly held before us. And here the sons of Ephraim were equipped with bows; They had all the weapons necessary to fight the battle, but they turned back. In the day of battle. And and I read about as many different explanations for what battle that is as I did commentaries. Because everybody has a different idea. But uh, we don't know what battle this refers to. But uh, maybe it refers to one that made the most sense to me. Is It may be just a reference to, failing, to Ephraim failing to come and take the land of Canaan in Numbers 13 and 14. But, but I'm not sure of that. But anyway, they didn't keep the covenant. They didn't walk in God's ways. They forgot His deeds. Now remember that statement in verse 11. They forgot His deeds. The whole purpose of telling this history is not to let happen what happened. They had forgotten God's deeds and look at the disaster that it brings. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. Every good thing God did for Israel was an argument. Why they should serve him. Why they should follow him. Why they should be his people and have him as their God. Everything that they did. Now what thoughts do you have on 1 through 11 uh, anything? Thoughts or questions? What, what a couple of writers do is they divide Psalm 78 at this point, beginning with verse 12, in a couple of panels that are parallel, basically. that Both of them will deal with God's gracious activity. Then that's contrasted with Israel's rebellion and even in the midst of um, some of this, there are also pictures of God's goodness and God's mercy. But that's the main focus. Israel's rebellion, God's anger and punishment. But then, God in His mercy restores the relationship. And and, and I think that might be a good way to look at these. That they're, uh, that um, He he goes over the story a couple of times to drive home its lessons. In verse uh, 12, he wrote wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and made the waters stand up like a heap. He led them by cloud, with the cloud by day, and all the night with a light of fi- fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. Now, all of these are pictures of God's goodness, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's love to the people of Israel. Look at how abundantly He provided for them. He brought wonders for their fathers in the land of Egypt. Now, I think verse 12, as will be clear in this second section... Refers to the to, particularly to the plagues that God used to strike the Egyptians. These are the wonders that He did. And think about being an enslaved, oppressed, beaten people, and to see these miracles falling on the these plagues falling on the Egyptians while you and your people are free. I mean, there's there's complete darkness in the land of Egypt, and all the sons of Israel have light. They see the difference. And what an argument for God and his power that was. And when they come to the sea, and the Egyptians are on one side with their horses and chariots, and the sea's on the other, and it seems like there's no way out. God divided the sea. Now, the word divided in the New American Standard, and look at your translation because this may be reflected in some of your translations. I looked at other translations, but I'm not remembering this right now. But the word divided in verse 13 used to refer to the sea is the same word translated split in verse 15 in reference to the rock. There's a comparison between God dividing the sea and God giving Israel water out of the rock. He split the sea or divided the sea and He split the rock. And divided the rock and caused the water to come out. But, but it's a way to, to, to show a connection between these activities. But God divided the sea, caused Israel to pass through, made the water stand up like a heap. The waters the waters did that at creation, according to Psalm 33, 7. They do that at the crossing of the sea, Exodus 15, verse 8. You, you know these stories well. By day... He led them by pillar of cloud and at night by fire. I could give you a lot of cross-references. If any of you need them afterwards, feel free to ask. But Exodus 13, beginning 17 through 22 is one of the first ones. But think about that. God's, God's guiding them. There's no, no question whether they should stay or where they should go because when the cloud moves, they move. The cloud stays, they stay. They're just listening to God, relying upon His God, guidance, and He guides them each step of the way, and He split the waters, the rocks, in the wilderness. Now, tell me the story of what happened there. Um, what I think it's talking about Exodus 17 could also incorporate Numbers 20, but what happened in those places? Anybody want to tell? David? Well, they were replaced with no water and the Israelites were grumbling, you yeah, know, yeah, we're going to die of thirst. Okay.
1: And uh, and the Lord told Moses, take your rod and strike the rock. And he did and it brought forth. Yeah, okay,
0: exactly. Abundantly. Now you notice, this psalm doesn't mention that complaint right, right now. Doesn't it mention it. That even heightens the point, doesn't it? (laughs) It heightens the point. When Israel's murmuring and complaining every step of the way. There are murmuring, complaining children saying to their parents, what have you done for me? And everything they have is from God. And they come to the rock and Moses is even afraid that they're going to Going to stone him in that case in Exodus 17 1 through 7. But it says that water came out of the rock. What's the significance of water coming from a rock?
1: It doesn't happen. (laughs) It
0: doesn't happen. It is the least likely place to get water. You know, you don't see people squeezing a rock to try to get water out of it if they're on some kind of survival thing because you don't get water out of a rock. But God brought water out of the most likely places. And I want you to notice too. He gave them abundant drink like the ocean death. Verse verse 15. In verse 16, brought forth streams. In verse 16, caused water to run down like rivers. All of this is to tell us out of this dry and barren source, God provided, God provided abundantly. After all, how much water would it take to satisfy all these people in the wilderness And their livestock. I I can't imagine what that would have looked like. You got this ocean, basically, and that's figuratively, flowing out of this rock. And just, God help us to learn from this. But if you're Israel, how do you complain again? How do you murmur again? How do you doubt God's ability to provide? Because they're stubborn and
2: rebellious.
0: (laughs) Yes. Maybe we're a lot more like those fathers in verse 8 than we would like to admit. How many of us would complain if we have the same thing to eat every day for forty years. <laughs> I mean, three or four days things get pretty shaky, you know. But forty years and yet that was wrong too. I can't, I, I can't forget something Gordon Winnem keeps saying in his little commentary on numbers as he talks with the people traveling to the wilderness and they're complaining. He said, for those of us who have been to this area, this part of the world, we sympathize with Israel as to why they would complain. But the biblical writer does not. It is ingratitude, it is unthankfulness, and it is sin. in spite of all God's goodness and all God's mercy, verse 17 says, yet they still continued to sin against Him. To rebel against the Most High in the desert. And there's the word that Vicky mentioned just a moment ago. Stubborn and rebellious in verse 8. And here's the verb form in verse 17. To rebel against the Most High in the desert. In verse 18. And they, in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. In their heart... I think this shows us this sin was deep-seated in the people. It's in their hearts. It's in their souls. Just like good things can be, bad things can be as well. In their heart, they put God to the test. Now, this idea of testing God, of putting God to the test is used here in verse 18. It's used in verse 41. It's used in verse 56. In all of these passages, you see it. Testing God. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. And they spoke against God and said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rocks, so that water gushed out and streams were flowing. Can he also? Can he give bread? Also, will he provide meat for his people? Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Can God give us food? It seems unto like me that part of the uh, genius of this text is that that question has already been answered in what they've experienced. God has given them water that's gushed out like an overflowing stream from a rock. Can God provide for them? When we face more difficulties economically, and I venture to say, I don't know everybody's all their life's experience, but I don't know anybody here who's got close to this experience. But if we ever doubted God's ability to provide, the very fact that God provided for Israel abundant waters out of a rock is proof he can provide a table in a wilderness, a barren land. That God can provide meat for his people. By the way, the words prepare a table. It's two words, verse 19. Prepare a table. It's two words in Hebrew. And those same two words appear in Psalm 23, verse 5. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup is overflowing. to some degree, to ask can God is an insult in itself that deserves a rebuke. Let me show you that. Look at Numbers 11. Numbers 11, a passage that's going to be invoked in just a little while. Numbers 11, Verses 19 and 20, God says, he is going to give them meat for a whole month. He's going to give them meat till it comes out your nostrils. He's going to give them meat till they become sick of it. But Moses said, now this is Moses. This is not the paid people. In verse 21, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, yet you have said I will give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? God, how are we going to feed this number of people is what Moses is asking. Are we going to kill every one of their herds and every one of their flocks and and catch every fish in the world? Is that what it's going to take? In verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you see whether my word will come true or not. And to ask a question, can God provide a table in the wilderness, is in a sense... Worthy of rebuke in itself. We're going to revisit that passage, Lord willing, later. This chapter talks greatly of God's love and God's mercy. But it talks also of God's wrath and God's holiness. In verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. Yet He commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Men did eat the bread of angels and He sent them food in abundance. (coughs) He calls the east wind to blow in the heavens and by His power He directed the south wind. When He rained meat upon them like the dust, even windfowl like the sand of the sea, then He let them fall in the midst of their camp round about their dwellings. Now, stop right there and we'll talk about those verses a moment. But we have seen God's goodness... Israel's sin, Israel's rebellion, Israel doubting God. And and God will judge them. But even though we've mentioned that the title of this section is being God's anger and punishment, there's just as much, if not more, to said about God's goodness in this section than there is about his judgment. And, And look at it and see, God's goodness is always shining through. But but we see, remember the purpose of this history in verse 7 was that people would put their confidence in God. But you see, this was not how their forefathers acted. In verse 22, they did not believe in God, did not trust in His salvation. Verse verse 32 will say the same kind of thing. God commanded the clouds above. He opened the clouds. The doors of heaven. Open the doors of heaven. Now, this is verse 23 that I'm commenting upon. I recognize they're writing everywhere. <clears throat> but open the doors of heaven. Now, this is not the exact expression. But there is a phrase, windows of heaven, that is used... In Genesis 7 verse 11 for God pouring down the waters of the flood. Also, in an account that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the sermon, in 2 Kings 7 verse 2 and 19, how, how are the windows of heaven used in that account? You remember the four lepers? put oh. the yeah, it talks about said if the Lord, this is the unbelieving man who says if the Lord should open the windows of heaven how can this be? And God told the people in the days of Malachi Malachi 3.10 Test me in this. Bring your tithe into the storehouse and I will pay I will give you I will pour out, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out of blessings too big for you to receive. This is not pouring. It's not the exact same expression. But every time that phrase, doors of heaven or windows of heaven is used, it's talking about God just pouring out things in abundance, great abundance. Whether it be the waters of the flood, whether it be the food and blessings that he gives to his people. Israel, it talks about pouring things out in great abundance. And that's the way it's used here. They are traveling through a barren wilderness where there are not natural sources of food. And God is pictured as opening the doors of heaven and raining down manna upon him. Notice the word rain is used in 24 to refer to the manna and 27 to refer to the meat or to the quail. It's a picture of God just pouring down a blessing. Upon it, it may even be comparing the blessing that He pours out to the waters of Noah's flood that covered the earth. May even be that point. But He rained down manna, gave them food from heaven. It's called in verse twenty-four, food from heaven, and it's called the bread of angels in verse twenty-five. Bread of angels. What's that? What's that mean? Okay, it's a good, good, good question. Such a good question, Gary. I ask it first. Um, so, what, what would you all say? I, I, I don't know exactly. God provided. God provided. It is, it is God provided.
1: You know, It's from
0: above. God provided. It's from above. And I think also it shows us the foolishness of their complaints. You know, we have nothing to eat except this manna. We're so sick of it. In Numbers 11, you see that complaint in Numbers 11, verses 4-9, um, through nine, and then in Numbers 21. Numbers 21, you see that complaint... Um, no, excuse me, it's Numbers 20... Uh, that you see that complaint in verses 2 through 7. You made us, you brought us in this wretched place. It's not a place of grain or vine or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Um, And um, there's another place they're complaining about the manna besides Numbers 11. But I
3: guess I was thinking along the lines of, you've heard the saying, fit for a king, food fit for a king. Yeah. So by mentioning red of angels, it's almost like they, they have a refined palate that this would be good enough for them to eat.
0: I, I, I think that that's probably a good comparison. You know, that that's uh, you know, I think it's showing like you're saying, this is the best thing available <coughs> and um, you know, why did they complain? Why did they murmur? but I want you to think about us too when we read this those of us who live in a land of plenty and people in this country who wrestle with having too much to eat instead of too little to eat usually have we ever been unthankful for what we've received have we ever complained, have we ever murmured
3: I, know I, don't. I go ahead. I know I don't. I'm always happy when somebody's feeding me. Well very okay, well good. It's that's
0: a that's a, that's maybe an open invitation for an invite to your house. From Gary. I won't say I don't know how to say that I can say this vaguely enough that you can. But I won't tell you I've been in some of these like lectureships where several preachers are around and you know, they have you all over to eat and house and meeting and I've heard complaining in those things. <laughs> we weren't given enough to eat. <laughs> so I'm saying, I know it happens, you know, and I know at times, at times we've probably all been guilty too. I know I have. Not those times as much, but sometimes. But what does the example of Israel show us? Not to be like them. Not to be like them. Man did eat the bread of angels. He set them food in abundance. And and then God calls the east wind to blow toward the, And they blow in the quail. And he rains down meat upon them. He not only rains down bread from heaven. But he rains down meat upon them. And he brings them right there in the camp. In verse 28, he let them fall in the midst of their camp and round about their dwelling. Uh, I want to tell you too, when you're, when you're looking at your Bible, your footnotes and your side notes can sometimes be eye-opening and call your attention to things you would have missed. And, and This happened just a, a few minutes before class. I was looking at that phrase in verse 25. It says, He sent them food in abundance. Sent them food in abundance. Now, that phrase in verse 25, I had a note to Exodus 16 verse 3. Exodus 16, verse 3. Some of the rest of you may. And it says, The sons of Israel were saying, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat when we ate bread to the full. To the full. Now, is translated differently in English, but those are the same Hebrew words in both cases. God gave them bread in abundance, they ate meat to the full. But I want you to see, this is more than just a, a game of connecting the dots, of saying it uses the same words. I want you to see how they are complaining that we had all you could eat in Egypt, and God gives them all they can eat. In the wilderness, God is answering their complaints with his mercy and kindness and compassion. And he is giving them bread to the full, giving them food in abundance, giving them all they could eat. Truly, it's a statement of his incredible mercy.
1: The only time they remembered God was when He
0: was
3: punishing them.
0: Yes, it seems like in verse 34 particularly. Yes?
3: Oh, Paul was reminding the Corinthians when he wrote to them in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. He said that uh, it was their lust. He's warning them to not... Uh, because yeah. their bodies were scattered and these things became our example so that, the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So their heart was not right, like you say. They were, they were lusting yeah. for things that they didn't have, instead of being thankful for what they had. And, and, uh, yes. To your point in the beginning of class, verse eleven, he says these things happen as an example for us. Yeah,
0: don't be like them. Yeah, it's a statement. Don't be like. But I think your statement, your statement there, is really good. And I want you to all think about that. that this is it's sometimes a longing for what we don't have is a failure to be grateful for what we do have think about that think about that I mean I, I suppose it's there's always going to be a certain longing in our hearts but for some things, I mean, I can think of books I like that I don't have, but but same time, we must be deeply thankful for what He does give us and what we do have. That trumps our desire over what we don't have, because we have been so blessed. And uh, but but notice God's grace in this picture in mercy, but there's going to be judgment too. In verse 29, they ate and were filled, and their their desire he gave to them. Verse 30, Psalm 78. Before they had had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouth, the anger of the Lord rose against them and killed some of the stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. Numbers 11. Numbers 11, verses 31 through 35, records these events. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep on the surface of the deep ground, The people spent all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. And they called the place Kibrathataba, because they buried the people who had been greedy. Their greed, their desire, their ingratitude for what God had given, their longing for more. God's very blessing also became a judgment. Now, that, that doesn't tell us that everybody that ate quail well was struck down dead. It seems to have been directed particularly to those who were greedy among them but it includes according to verse 31 some of their stoutest and choicest. It's very hard for me to decide whether verse 32 and 33 should go up here or whether it should come down to this section. But in verse 32 if you begin it if you make this the beginning of a new section, it corresponds with verse 17. I don't know how much we should take that consideration. But in verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in His wonderful works. I mean, with all we've seen in our day, we're going to keep sinning against God. We're going to keep rebelling. We're going to keep refusing to listen to Him. That's what Israel, Israel was. In spite of all this, they still sinned. They did not believe their wonderful works. So He brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. This word translated futility is the word translated vanity. In verse 33, this word translated futility is the word translated vanity in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is
3: vanity. (laughs)
0: It is emptiness. And their years came to an end in futility. I think this is talking about that wilderness generation. Again, what, what comments do you have? I know we've had so much to cover <coughs> that I haven't given you much time for that. Okay, verse 34. When he killed them, then they sought him. And returned and searched diligently for Him. I think this is what Boyd meant earlier. The only time they seem to pay attention to God is when He judges them and they straighten up for a moment. As Isaiah 26 verse 9 says, For when the earth experiences your judgments... The inhabitants of the earth learn righteousness. Isaiah 26 verse 9. When he killed them, they sought him and returned and searched diligently for him. And verse 35, they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High their Redeemer. They remembered that. Now, before, they have forgotten in verse 7, or were warned not to forget in verse 7. In verse 11, they forgot. In verse 42, they will not remember. But right now, when they are judged, they remember God was their rock. And the Most High, their Redeemer. In verse 36, they deceived Him with their mouths. They lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him, nor were they faithful to His covenant. Would you say the text itself describes this repentance as sincere or insincere? Insincere. Insincere. I think you're right Gary I think it's insincere and yet even then even then verse 38 but he being compassionate forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them he often restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath thus he remembered we've seen the people forget and superficially remember in verse 35, but He remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and does not return. God was full of wrath in verse 21. God was filled with wrath in verse 59. But God is compassionate. And this word compassionate used in verse 38 was also used in Psalm 77 and verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in His anger withdrawn His compassion? That was the question asked. Has God in His anger withdrawn His compassion? And what we find is that God is compassionate. 78.38 Has He in His anger withdrawn His compassion? God has restrained His anger and did not arouse all His wrath until we get to final judgment. The world has never seen a full display of God's anger and wrath. There have been some terrible things happen in history that have been judgments from God. But until we get to that day, God is restraining his anger and not arousing all his wrath. And it's fascinating to me that in verse 39, he remembers that we are but flesh. We're going to come to that idea again in Psalm 103 verse 14. That God remembers how frail we are. And that's a reason for His mercy. And what's so amazing about that is we're so, one of the reasons we're so frail is because of our own sin. Our sin has brought this problem on us and yet still it is a reason for God to show Mercy. God is full of wrath. God is compassionate and forgiving and restraining His wrath. Both are true. And we have to understand both. To eliminate either one of them is to mute the biblical story. Now what ideas come to your mind in this in these verses uh, <clears throat>
1: Barnes Barnes notes on verse 39 uh, bring up Jesus's statement in Matthew 26:41 the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak okay we we, we have a god who who remembers that <clears throat> we are but flesh yeah
0: good point it's a good a good verse to bring in with it
3: I was thinking about that verse, too. All, all my life growing up, I've heard the phrase, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of giving somebody <clears throat> slack in judgment because, well, they're only human, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I remember after becoming a Christian, I always just kind of grew up accepting that statement that, ah, we're only human, like we're flawed. But mm-hmm. I heard a sermon where it talked about we're made in the image of God, yeah. so we're not flawed, Yes, and he, you know he made us at the top of the food chain and gave us brains intellect, and and yes, all of that stuff. So there's. I think
0: what you're saying is right, but I think both both of those are true. Both of those are true. There's a certain sense in which our shared humanity and our is leads us to have mercy. If it leads God to have mercy on us because of our physical weakness, and <clears throat> then it should lead us to have mercy on one another. And yet at the same time, that's right. We are created in God's image and we can't use that as an excuse for sin. And that's the difficulty sometimes with certain truths in the Bible. you got to keep keep them in balance. Now, last night, uh, Sid Latham was saying, "I can't say it as well as the quote he was giving." Is a quote from D. Bowman, but balance is what we see we need as we're swinging from one side of the pendulum to the other. You know, and and balance is something that we need. You know, and and I think both of those are true. Um, but let's talk about. If you all don't have more thoughts on the psalm, and it is a powerful psalm, but let's talk about how Jesus fulfills Psalm seventy eight. Jesus and Psalm seventy-eight. Now, now, understand—you are only allowed to go to verse thirty-nine. <laughs> 78, 39 thirty-nine. We'll put it that way. But the first thirty-nine verses—how do you see Jesus fulfilling that, Vicky? In verse fifteen, um, where He split the rock and He gave
2: them
1: drink abundantly as from the deep, in John four, four, four.
0: 414, Jesus says that he will give us drink and we won't be thirsty. Okay. Uh, Jesus, you know, whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but there shall be in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Very good. You know, it seems like to me too, There is some time in the life of Christ where the rocks are split. Not in
1: the
0: life. (laughs) Well, yeah, in Matthew twenty-seven, yes, Matthew twenty-seven. And I didn't check if these were the same words because I hadn't thought about the point until Vicky just made it. Verse fifty-one. Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus... Let me start 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split. Wow. And then also, not exactly the same language... But the same kind of idea in Matthew 28, in verse 2, Behold, a severe earthquake occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So the rocks were split in the death of Christ, and the stone was rolled away in the resurrection of Christ. If it was an amazing thing that God had split the rock and brought water out of it, how much more when God rolled away the stone and the water of life comes forth triumphantly from the grave, how much more in that case? Very good. Thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Gary mentioned 1 Corinthians 10. Yes. Uh, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ.
0: Okay, they, let's just tie it with the passage. They remembered their rock in verse 35, which <clears throat> is a reference to God. And they remembered their rock after the Lord struck them, and that rock was Christ. How many of you would have ever gotten that if Paul hadn't said it? <laughs> I'm not one who would have gotten it. I bet, but but uh, God is their rock on whom they depend. Christ is their rock. That whom, and, and since we're talking 1 Corinthians 10, um, the Bible three times in this psalm, but one time in our class tonight, psalm, it talks about putting God to the test. And this is specifically referred to in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9. They, they tested God. They put Him to the test. It's talking about the wilderness experience right there. I think Gary also alluded to, to that passage. But this, this New Testament word to put to the test is used four times in the New Testament. And that's one of them. The other three are these. Matthew 4.7, Luke 4.12, same context in both of those, the temptations of Jesus. And he quotes, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this term is also used in Luke 10 and verse 25, where the Bible tells us, The lawyer comes putting Jesus to the test, asking him a question. One of the passages we mentioned earlier, as Satan will come back to, is Psalm 78, verse 2. He spoke in parables. spoke in parables 78, two, and this is quoted in Matthew 13 verses 34 and 35 to refer to Jesus teaching in parables <clears throat> now this particular word is used in Matthew 13 just in Matthew 13 this is used 13 times. Should be easy to remember. 13 times in Matthew 13. Now let me tell you a place where this same word is used in the Old Testament. The same word is used in the Old Testament. The word translated parable here is translated Proverbs in Proverbs 1:1, 1, 1, in Proverbs 10:1, in Proverbs 25, 1 and other places. Now, if the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the Proverbs, to refer to the teaching of the wise man here, to to the, the fact that Jesus spoke these ways, Jesus is viewed as a wisdom teacher. Greater than Solomon is here. That statement has just been made in Matthew 12. It's just been made in Matthew 12, 38 through 42. when queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And greater than Solomon is here. And then in the next chapter, Jesus is speaking parables, proverbs like Solomon. If we listen to his proverbs, and we should then we should listen to Jesus.
3: We were mentioning in the study there how the people really were shocked in response when God was killing them. Oh, yes, you are God. And they were using their mouth to confess that and to praise Him, but their hearts were were not in it. When the Disciples asked in, uh, back in Matthew 13, why do you speak in parables? He said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been known. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So I think Jesus has taken this the same thought in the sense that when he's teaching the parables, those that have a true heart to want to know God Yes. they're going to sit, listen intently and yes. contemplate and, and, and maybe even ask and, and figure it out and the people that don't really have mm-hmm. a clue and don't really care, they're not going to figure it out and they're yeah. going to do whatever. And it's, and it's a good
0: answer to the question as Ed Harrell says in an old sermon why is the Bible written the way it is? It's written so that those who want to figure it out can and those who don't want to can be confused.
3: Um. And uh, but that is a good passage, Gary. Mm-hmm. So they were and in that part. They were losing their lives because they didn't believe in in Jesus's dispensation. They're still losing their lives. Yeah. And even eternally. Yeah. Yes.
0: You're right. Because they don't want to listen. Another thing that struck me. Is the word, if this word is translated wonders or miracles. It's a word in the class this morning that um, Jeremy called attention to, the class that a few of you were in. That word, wonders and miracles, the word that's used here in the Greek translation is only used once in the New Testament. And that one time, is Matthew 21, 15, for the children in the temple are praising the wonderful things that Jesus is doing as he is healing the blind and lame. Only use once in the New Testament. But this is what I'm saying. There's a comparison between God's miracles and wonders in the Old Testament such as the dividing of the Red Sea and the plagues, etc. There's a comparison between those and the miracles God does through Jesus in the use of His time. David. Yeah, verse 11, and they forgot
1: His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. Uh, that certainly applies to the crowd when He was on trial before Pilate. And what shall I do with Jesus? Yeah. And they holler, crucify Him.
0: I think that, in, in, and I, I wanted to save it till next week, but, but, you, but you make a good point. <laughs> <laughs> that in a Turn very real sense, ground. yeah, <laughs> a very real sense, though, the ministry of Jesus and particularly the cross of Jesus is the ultimate display of both of these points: the goodness of God and the sinfulness of Israel. And and we see all those points if I can use this phrase here, on steroids in the death trial of Jesus. Because you see man's sin and God's <coughs> mercy. But there's there's so much to say here, but let me try to quickly say a couple of things. I got, I got one. Okay. <clears throat>
1: Verse 25, we talked about the bread of angels. Uh, John 6.
0: Yeah, that was one of us once. Well, but go ahead. <laughs> go Je- <for> <clears throat>
1: Jesus says... In verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he shall also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But his disciples, conscious that the disciples grumbled, says, Does this
0: cause you to stumble? They complained. Yes. They complained. It's a familiar pattern, isn't it? God gives them the bread. And they are unthankful and ungrateful. But yes, all of John 6. And it's specifically, you know, Moses gave us manna. And what sign will you do? But starting at verse 26, you see that it's the rest of the chapter. Particularly John was reading all parts of it. it it's, you know, God... God provides the ultimate bread in Jesus. He said, it wasn't Moses who gave you this bread. It's my Father who gave you this bread. And uh, But yes, and, and man, that's, that's powerful. That is powerful. But I'll tell you something else too. The question in verse 19, can God provide a table in the wilderness? Same miracle. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Only miracle <clears throat> recorded in all four Gospels besides the resurrection. The word translated wilderness in Psalm 9, in Psalm 78, verse 19, at least from the Greek translation, is the word used to describe the place. The wil- It may say secluded place in some of your translations. I think that's what the New American Standard says. <clears throat> It says secluded place, but it is the same word desert. I think I've got those verses right. As all those make a reference to the desert as a place where Jesus provides a table. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000. Yes. Our God can provide a table in the wilderness now you can make a lesson out of either one of those poems. but I appreciate your thoughts because so many so many ways in which Jesus fulfills these words and I'm sure there's some others that we haven't touched upon Anything else? No, I don't think Brad still had a song. Did he? he said he wasn't gonna have one for a few weeks? So but thank you. I guess we you get still got your money's worth, maybe hopefully. And, um but thank you for listening. I know it's I know it's a long class, but such a powerful passage
3: thank you Um, I was thinking of something another preacher used to say recently all the time uh, towards the end of his sermon he would say how do we walk this off the page how do we apply it to our lives and you did a good job of helping walk this off the page that it made it come come alive that we can think about it and chew on it well thank you thank you (laughs) I appreciate
0: it thank you but Phil would you lead us in prayers we close
2: God our Father, how great you are. Father, we uh, have learned and studied tonight how great you are, how you, uh, in spite of Israel's rebellion, in spite of our rebellion, you are a great and gracious and merciful God, Father. We see your power throughout history, how you have displayed that in so many different ways for us to see. Father, help us to learn from history, to not repeat the rebellion of the people of Israel. Help us, Father, that our hearts might be molded and shaped and desire you that we might, might be able to sit at the table that you prepare, abundantly overflowing with your bounty. Father, we're thankful for Jesus and how we see him fulfilling all of these things and we are amazed that you would send him for us to redeem us to restore our relationship with you and that you would do that for for us Uh, lowly men and women help us Father that we might live in a way that would show that we understand what you have done turn away from the things that would distract us and turn away from the Uh, the discontentment of this life and realize that there is more beyond in our relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.